I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello all and welcome to Musical Minutes with John and John. I'm your host, John Noreen, and we are in the final week of the solo shows, which means next week we'll be welcoming back John McKeever and starting our month-long look into February flops. But for today, I'll be looking at the 1965 production Man of La Mancha, with book by Dale Wasserman, music by Mitch Lee, lyrics by Joe Darian, based on the life and works of Miguel de Cervantes. Man of La Mancha opened at the ANTA Washington Square Theater on November 22, 1965, and ran 2,328 performances before closing on June 26, 1971. During that time, it transferred to the Martin Beck Theater in March of 1968, the Eden Theater in March of 1971, and the Mark Hellinger Theater in May 1971. Man of La Mancha was directed by Albert Marais, choreographed by Jack Cole, and music directed by Neil Warner. The original cast included Richard Kiley as Don Quixote, Miguel de Cervantes, Irving Jacobson as Sancho Panza, Joan Diner as Aldonza, John Cipher as Dr. Carrasco, Gino Conforti as the Barber, and Mimi Taruk as Antonia. Man of La Mancha was nominated for seven Tony Awards and won five, including Best Musical, Best Leading Actor, and Best Score. It is during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, which hardly anyone expected. The tax collector slash author Miguel de Cervantes has been thrown into prison with his manservant for trying to foreclose on a monastery. The prisoners begin to rob him of his possessions, including his book manuscript, but are called off by a criminal known as the Governor, who suggests a trial to see if Cervantes must give up his possessions. He is charged with being an idealist and a bad poet. He pleads guilty, but asks if he can present a defense in the form of a play acted out by him. The governor agrees. With the aid of things from his trunk, Cervantes transforms himself into Alonso Quijano, a doddering old man who is so enamored with the old ideas of knighthood and chivalry that he renames himself Don Quixote de la Mancha and goes off in search of adventure with his sidekick, Sancho Panza. On their journey, they spot a series of windmills, which Don Quixote mistakes for a distant giant. With a roar, he charges the windmill on his horse. It does not go well. Quixote decides that it was a lost cause because he has yet to be properly knighted. He sees a nearby inn and decides that it is, in fact, a local castle, and orders Sancho to announce his arrival. In the inn is a group of muleteers and Aldonza a serving wench. The muleteers are propositioning her, and she is refusing to give in. 
Upon entering, Quixote sees the woman and declares that she is Dulcinea, his lady and muse, an idea that is thoroughly mocked by everyone in the inn. Meanwhile, back home, Quixote's family consults a local priest about what they should do with their errant patriarch. However, the priest can easily see that they're more worried about how Quixote's misadventures will reflect on them, and not any real concern for the man. Dr. Carrasco is about to marry into the family, and he proposes that it could be a worthy challenge for him to use his unique abilities to bring the old man home. He sets out with the priest to find Quixote and do just that. Back at the inn, Quixote sends Sancho to Aldonza asking for a favor to wear into battle. She responds by giving him an old dish rag. Aldonza then asks Sancho why he follows Quixote, to which he can only reply, because I like him. The muleteers proposition Aldonza once more, and she agrees to a liaison with Pedro, their leader. Dr. Carrasco and the priest arrive at the inn, but cannot convince Quixote to come home. In fact, he sees a passing barber who is wearing his shaving basin on his head to protect him from the sun. To Quixote, the basin is actually the golden helmet of Mambrino, a helmet that will make him invulnerable to all attacks. Dr. Carrasco and the priest leave the latter bemused by Quixote's view on life, and wonders if he really needs curing at all. Quixote still feels the need to be knighted, and plans to stand vigil in the yard all night so that the nobleman of the house, who's really the innkeeper, can knight him in the morning. During the night, Aldonza confronts Quixote and questions him on why he is doing... all of this which garners Quixote's reply about his ideals, his hopes, and his dreams. Pedro then enters, growing weary of being delayed by Aldonza, slapping the woman when he finds her. Quixote then begins to fight the muleteers, despite having no real skill with the sword, but with some effort and a lot of trickery from Aldonza and Sancho, the muleteers are knocked unconscious, but the noise awakens the innkeeper, who tries to kick out Quixote. The knight-errant reminds the nobleman of his promise to knight him, and the innkeeper does so, dubbing him the Knight of Woeful Countenance. Quixote then announces that he must comfort the wounded muleteers, as chivalry dictates. But Aldonza says that she will do so in his stead. She goes to them with bandages and salves, but the muleteers violently beat her, unaware Quixote is off reveling in his new knighthood. In their adventures past the inn, Quixote and Sancho encounter a band of performers who take advantage of Quixote and steal everything he owns, including his horse. They return to the inn, where they find a beaten and bruised Aldonza. Quixote swears vengeance, but Aldonza screams at him for mistaking her for a real lady and giving her hope at a life she can never have. Suddenly, another knight enters the inn. He exclaims that he is the mortal enemy of Don Quixote, the Enchanter, and he is in the garb of the Knight of the Mirrors. The two fight, 
and the Knight of the Mirrors surrounds Quixote with polished shields, reflecting Quixote as he truly is, a broken old man. Quixote collapses to his knees. Removing his helmet, we see that the Knight of the Mirrors is really Dr. Carrasco, returned with his plan to bring Quixote home. Back in the dungeon, Cervantes announces that the story is finished. The prisoners don't like this and decide to burn the manuscript because it lacks a proper ending. Cervantes begs to present one final scene, and the court agrees. Quixote is back at home in his bed. He has fallen into a sort of coma. Sancho is by his side and tries to cheer him up. He is successful in rousing the old man, and Alonso opens his eyes. He seems to have returned to his sanity. He identifies himself as Alonso Quijano once more, and thinks of his Quixotean adventures as a dream. But he also knows his end is near, so he asks the priest to come so that he can take down Quijano's will. Suddenly, Aldonza muscles her way into the room. She cannot live without the idea of being Dulcinea, but is shocked when Quijano doesn't recognize her. She speaks Quixote's words about his ideals, his hopes, and dreams, and this returns the memory of Quixote. He rises from his bed once more, calling for his armor and his sword so that he can continue his adventures, and then falls back into his bed, dead. One of the things we like to talk a lot about in this show is the concept of theater tropes, traditions, and kind of ideals that have pervaded from era to era in music theater. And Man of La Mancha has one of the big ones. It doesn't have singing and dancing gangsters, because as we all know, that is the peak of the musical minutes with John and John kind of trope pyramid. But it has this concept of the show within a show, and we've talked about some in the past. Arguably, Cabaret is a show within a show, with the, sh with the inner show being the production at the actual Cabaret. The Drowsy Chaperone, you have the larger framework of the man in the chair telling the story of the Drowsy Chaperone, so the show within the show. You have it in a little more literal sense in Kiss Me Kate, where the characters are literally performing a show within the show. So it's definitely a trope that's well established by the time of Man La Mancha, but I love how Man of La Mancha uses this trope. So on its outermost shell, you have the Spanish Inquisition, which, again, as I said before, no one ever expects. And you have this idea that Miguel de Cervantes, who in real life was a tax collector in addition to being an author, and who was actually thrown into prison for a brief period of time during the Spanish Inquisition, is in jail. And... He is invited, with invited being in quotes, to present his tale to the other prisoners. In this case, the completely fictitious idea that he would have been thrown into jail with all of his belongings, including the manuscript for what we assume becomes Don Quixote de la Mancha. And he's invited to produce this story, this show that's within the show, in order to kind of save himself. Unlike 
other examples we've seen of this trope in other shows, it's done on the most basic level. So the other prisoners are brought in to play characters within this story, knowingly or unknowingly. When it's done at its original intent, everything is pulled from this trunk. So the the horses are benches that are in the cell. The helmet and the basin and their capes and their swords... All of these are just everyday objects that are either pulled from the trunk or found in the cell. So you're not getting this literal show within a show with high polished production values. What you're getting is a pantomime of sorts. What you're getting is the barest essentials of one man finding everything that he can around him in order to tell this story. It almost harkens back to, you know, everyone's quintessential childhood when you're playing make-believe in the bedroom and, you know, your blanket becomes your superhero cape or, you know, your teddy bear becomes the evil wizard that you have to defeat. And that's what's happening here in Man of La Mancha. It's these basic elements are, are put together to form the Don Quixote de La Mancha story. And... It really distills the concept to the most basic idea and for me draws me in even further because it invites me not only to kind of pay attention to this show within a show, but also with my imagination, with my view to help create the story, you know. Whether it's a bench or a sawhorse or whatever for a horse, whether it's a stick that is supposed to be a sword, whether it's a dirty basin that is ultimately supposed to be a helmet, it's my imagination that creates it within the story, which, if you want to get kind of metaphysical here for a second, is also what's happening with Quixote in his mind, seeing these everyday objects that convert them into something a little bit more magical, something a little bit more musical and ultimately it's the core beauty of this show is this invitation to draw in the audience to make them use their imagination to just put the show up on a next pedestal musically this show is not horribly difficult it's not a particularly long score it's not a particularly diverse score. I will give credit to Mitch Lee, who even back in 1965 was pretty spot on in his sympathetic and authentic use of Spanish and Latin rhythms. This show is, is kind of peppered throughout the entire score with these, these little ideas, these little motives. They're not presented necessarily to be cliche or stereotype. Or, as we've talked about, like in Kismet, this kind of feeling of exoticism. It's there to set the stage in, for them, what was an authentic, sympathetic manner. It adds, ultimately, dignity to this score. And, let's be honest, it's Don Quixote de la Mancha. So there's a lot of dignity to this score. This kind of Quixotean ideal of honor and justice and fair play for all. And, like the story or not... One has to admit that it's the purity of Quixote that drives this ideal, that makes him commit the acts he's done, for better or for worse, 
And the music just lends it to it. Probably the most popular song in the show is The Impossible Dream, which is the song that Quixote sings to Aldonza when he's basically kind of explaining who he is and what he's doing and how he's always going to try and do better. He's always going to try and work. He's always going to try and fight and stand up for the weaker person. And he's not going to be completely successful. It's never going to, he's never going to get there. It's always going to be this idea of an impossible dream, but that won't stop him, which ultimately lends itself to why this show is so captivating to me and why this show is successful. Because this is based off of a classical book, uh, Don Quixote de la Mancha, as written by Cervantes, this show for me is not necessarily a Cliff Notes version because I feel like that makes it overly simplistic, but it's a way to present the book and the Quixotean ideals to the masses and make it understood. I've read the original book, and I won't lie, it's it's daunting, um, especially to someone who doesn't like kind of the thick verbosity of Charles Dickens or Victor Hugo or basically all of the romantic Russians. It's not an easy book to get through. But what I love about this show ultimately is that it presents the book faithfully and traditionally in a way that you can understand it and not have to worry about just the the dense text of the source material. So, if you're interested in listening to more of Man of La Mancha, the original Broadway cast from 1965 is out there with a fantastic performance by Richard Kiley, and I would highly recommend it. And in 2002, there was a revival with Brian Stokes Mitchell as Don Quixote and Mary Elizabeth Mestrantonio as Aldonza, which I can highly recommend for an alternate take. Just as a reminder, next week we'll be starting our February flop series, where we're going to take four shows that may have failed for various reasons. These are going to be shows that we love, there might be a show that we hate, maybe a show we're indifferent to, and a show that just confuses us. What they all have in common is they didn't play particularly long, or the critics didn't like them, or a combination of both. And most importantly, John McKeever will be back with us next week, so I can't wait, and I hope you can't either. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.